0: Among the most consequential words of this most consequential year were those spoken at the dawn of the new presidency. In retrospect, everything that has transpired and everything yet to unfold were contained in the first 10 minutes of the first speech of the just sworn in president. It was The concentrated rhetorical energy of the political Big Bang. On January 20th, assembled before what was apparently the largest crowd in the history of inaugural addresses, (laughs) the president charged, from this day forward a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, It's going to be only America first, America first. America will start winning again, winning like never before. At the bedrock of our politics, said the president, will be total allegiance to the United States of America. And through our loyalty to our country, we will rediscover our loyalty to each other. The phrase, America First, has a troubled past. In the years before Pearl Harbor, the most prominent group advocating non-intervention in Europe was the America First Committee. At one point, up to 80% of Americans opposed American military intervention in the war, but the America First Committee went further, believing that reconciliation with Hitler was possible and desirable. From that sense, the America First Committee was our own appeasement movement. Not only did it oppose military intervention, it opposed military support for Britain, the only democracy still standing. It is not the duty of the United States to police the world, they said. Like today, the America Firsters of the last century century demanded total allegiance. Whoever had a different position, whoever advocated intervention by definition, did not place America first. If you agreed that we should stay out of the war, you were a loyal patriot. If you disagreed, if you thought that American interests required intervention against Nazi Germany, you must have conflicting loyalties. And thus, what began as a legitimate discussion over the wisdom of American intervention quickly descended into xenophobia, intolerance, and anti-Semitism. The slogan, America First, became a club to wield accusations of disloyalty. The best known spokesman for the America First Committee was Charles Lindbergh. He accused American Jews of leading the rush to war with eerie similarities to Hitler's 1939 speech two years before foretelling the total destruction of European Jewry. Lindbergh said no person of honesty and vision can look at their pro-war policy without seeing the dangers both for us as well as for them. The Jews will be among the first to feel its consequences. Tolerance is a virtue that cannot survive war. Their greatest danger to this country is their large ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, our radio, and our government. Today, as yesterday, America first, is a cynical slogan. Now, as then, it confuses dissent with disloyalty. Now, as then, it demands total allegiance, a phrase straight out of George Orwell. Now, as then, it considers disagreement unpatriotic. Now, as then, it conflates unity with uniformity. Now, as then, it disunites, it creates division, it seeks scapegoats, leading to xenophobia, intolerance, and anti-semitism. It pits one group of Americans against another. Someone else must be responsible for what the President called this American carnage. Those who do not place America first, who might they be? Mexicans? Muslims? immigrants, non-English speakers, Jews, bankers, liberals, the media, academics, the elite, transgender. Now as then-America Firsters inclined toward isolationist politics, grounded in a pessimistic view of human nature, the Citadel is under attack by marauding mobs. We must build barricades, not bridges. Walls, not windows. Does American patriotism require a form of nationalism that discourages multilateral cooperation? Do the needs of others concern us at all? Does America have a higher purpose? We may have different views about the Paris Climate Accord. But why imply that those who negotiated it and those who supported it are purposely putting American interests second? Who thinks that way? Well, you know, the former president wasn't actually born in this country in the first place. Who thinks that way? Why cite where a judge's parents were born as the reason for his decision? Who thinks that way? We've seen this before. In times of stress, it might make for good politics. It might even get you elected. German Americans are spies. Japanese Americans sympathize with the enemy. African Americans are only three-fifths Americans. Hollywood actors are communists. Gay Americans are un-American. Catholic Americans' first oath is to the Vatican. Jews are only loyal to Jews. Close the gates. Send the ship back to Europe. We later regretted what we did. When the storms passed and the skies cleared, we considered these excesses as themselves un-American. We have entered another period of American history where fear, dislocation, polarization, and a general air of discontent pervades. At precisely these times, we must remind ourselves what America stands for and what Judaism requires. America is an experiment unprecedented in human affairs. We've often fallen short, we still have a long way to go, but our aspirations are noble and our accomplishments substantial. From the beginning we defined our purpose beyond the narrow constraints of tribe and territory. Founded on an idea, freedom. And grounded in institutions that limit the power of government to restrict freedom. America proclaimed that all human beings are equally entitled to liberty. Liberty! Not blood, race, religion, ethnicity, creed, social status, land, or inheritance. Liberty defines America. Whoever is committed to that idea is our friend. It's a Jewish idea. We wrote the first chapter in the right of peoples to be free. A right bestowed not by pharaohs, kings, or rulers, but by God. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you not humble yourself before me, Pharaoh? Let my people go. Our loyalty is to the American spirit. To be an American is to love liberty. It is to spread liberty to the four corners of the earth. America is a beacon. A torch, the standard-bearer of the highest hopes and noblest aspirations of mankind, the last best hope on earth. Abraham Lincoln put it this way, it was not the mere separation of the colonies from the motherland but that sentiment in the Declaration of Independence which gave liberty, not alone to the people of this country, but hope to all the world, for all future time. It was that which gave promise that, in due time, the weights would be lifted from the shoulders of all men, and all should have an equal chance. This is the sentiment embodied in the Declaration of Independence, said Lincoln. I would rather be assassinated on this spot than surrender it. We are obligated to preserve, protect, and defend these values. In periods of stress, when we fall short of our own lofty principles, It's more urgent than ever. It is vital now to remind ourselves of and to educate our children in the values of American patriotism and Jewish responsibility. The rabbis teach in a place where there are no men, strive to be a man. In modern terms, When the atmosphere all around you is brutal, insensitive, degrading, dehumanizing, stand up and speak. Stand for principle. Make a difference. This is what our synagogue has dedicated itself to with greater urgency in the past year. Hundreds of you have participated. Many of you have contributed resources allowing us to be our best communal selves. And we've made a difference in the world and have fortified our own moral health and we intend to continue doing so until we are satisfied that America is the best that she can be. Beyond anger, beyond even outrage, I perceive sadness in our country. Americans are sad. It goes beyond policy disagreements. It cuts deep, to the heart. The day after the president's infamous Charlottesville press conference, even conservative commentators openly wept on television. Cry the beloved country. People are stunned, afraid, experiencing a level of anxiety they have never felt before. They worry for the soul of our country, mourning its lack of moral leadership. Even basic competence can no longer be taken for granted, an alarming condition given the unstable state of the world. Americans are disappointed, even embarrassed. It's confusing nowadays to be an American abroad. On our refugee relief mission, I stood at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin in view of the Reichstag and it was devastating to think that it was the German Chancellor, not the American president who is the world's foremost champion of human dignity today. In all my 58 years, I've never felt this and never thought this no matter who the president was and what party he represented. America is the leader of the free world. A burden we have willingly assumed for our own interests as well as humanity itself. This has been our bipartisan assumption since World War II. In the mid-20th century, Republican presidential candidate Wendell Wilkie said, the cloak that binds America together is woven a strong yet delicate fabric. It serves to shelter alike the rich and the poor, the native and the foreign born, Jew and Gentile, black and white. Let no one tear it asunder, for we do not know where we shall find its like again. The American fabric is strong, yet delicate. Let no one tear it asunder. Nothing is permanent in human affairs. Everything changes. Everything human is fragile. We thought that the expansion of civil and human rights was one-way history, that we can never go back. It has become apparent to us in the past month that in some ways we're still fighting the Civil War. The debate over Confederate statues is fundamentally about what kind of America we want. There were many reasons for the Civil War. But the driving force was slavery. Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens stated it openly in 1861, three weeks after Lincoln's inauguration. The foundations of our new government are laid. Its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. That subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. He is fitted for that condition in which he occupies in our system. It is best not only for the superior, but for the inferior race that it should be so. It is indeed in conformity with the ordinance of the creator. That was the confederacy. Secessionist, seditionist, supremacist. That was the system defended by Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. Removing their statues does not mean, as the president tweeted, that the history and culture of our great country is being ripped apart with the removal of those beautiful statues. The Civil War is part of American history and culture, but not the beautiful part. We should not venerate or honor those who defended a repulsive, abhorrent, and discredited worldview, especially today when racists, white supremacists, and Nazis co opt Confederate symbols. It's not a question of political correctness. It's not a question of erasing American history. It's not a desire to see the American project fail. It is not to bring America down. It is to raise America. To acknowledge our own American history. To confront our past and to build a better future. It is the Jewish way. Slavery was our first experience, our first memory, as Moses freeing the slaves. Our first task is to vanquish the taskmaster, not to build monuments in his honor. How would Jews react if our country built statues to our people's persecutors? I'll never forget my feelings of revulsion in Kiev and seeing a statue of Bogdan Khmelnytsky, the Cossack leader who massacred tens of thousands of Jews and burned to the ground 300 Jewish villages, the destroyer of our people granted a place of honor in Kiev's Central Square. And speaking of our people, did anyone think that an atmosphere of intolerance would bypass Jews? Did anyone think that threats against mosques would not eventually lead to threats against synagogues? Did anyone think that some very fine people marching with white supremacists and neo-Nazis would spare their wrath for the Jews? Did anyone think that some good people on both sides would materialize among the hate mongers as well? Jews are so complacent that many of us, in particular the younger generation, do not consider ourselves a minority at all. We assumed that anti-Semitism is a thing of the past. There is no past when it comes to anti-semitism, only perpetual vigilance. Have you studied history? Have you read the story of our people? Have you reflected on human nature? What have you learned? that we can mark the doorposts of our house and that the angel of death can pass over us, that the creeping shadows of intolerance can bypass Jews, leaving only us and a few good racists basking in the sunshine? It's the opposite. We're usually the first affected, not the last. It's not a question of whether any particular public figure is anti-Semitic. Rather, the question is, are we, wittingly or not, creating, permitting, or encouraging an atmosphere of intolerance, aid, and comfort to Jew-haters? They said it themselves. They feel as if they have a friend in the White House. Anti-Semitism is a dagger in the heart of liberty because it's never only about Jews. Jews are the canary in the mine. We're often the first to suffer but nevertheless when the canary dies it reveals a toxic and lethal atmosphere that no living being can endure. Anti-Semitism is poison. It destroys the living tissues of the body politic. There are no good anti-Semites. There are no very fine people among the haters. Hatred against Jews never stops with Jews. Bomb threats against Jews, hate speech against Jews, desecration of Jewish cemeteries, internet and social media trolling of Jews, these are precursors, warnings, that something is rotten in the state. The idea that Jews, anywhere, let alone in the United States, cower in fear, their lives and livelihoods threatened by hate mongers, is deeply unsettling and unnerving. We vowed never again. It was a solemn oath. Never again would Jews hide, fretful and anxious, isolated and exposed to the mad passions of the mob. All Jews are responsible one for the other, teach our sages. When one Jew feels pain, all feel pain. When one Jew suffers, all suffer. Stand up and be counted. Do something. Join our synagogue's anti-semitism task force, now over a hundred strong. Take the threat seriously. We must be vigilant and proactive. The only way to defeat hate is to confront it. This is one of the key lessons of Jewish history. Powerlessness encourages attacks. Fear encourages terrorists. Bullies must be confronted. It was our desire to stand up and be counted that led us to establish the Immigration and Refugee Task Force and to embark upon a refugee relief mission. Representatives of two of the NGOs we partnered with in Greece and Germany will be here on Yom Kippur to teach and to hear from us. The issue of immigration is exceedingly complicated, we know that. Still, we were appalled at the bullying of the weakest and most desperate human beings. We wanted to reject the narrow nationalism force fed to us by some of our leaders, to resist viewing suffering people as hindrances, threats, and enemies of the homeland, to respond to pitting group against group, and to bear witness to the struggle pain, vulnerability, and universality of the human condition. This too is a Jewish value. We did some good in Greece and Germany. We brought gifts, resources that so many in our congregation donated, including the youngest in our community, the children of our nursery and religious schools. We made life a little better for those whose lives are not good. We gave comfort to aid workers who toil without recognition, who dignify the indigent, serving and saving those they do not even know. But it was not only that. We went for ourselves, for our own self-respect. We went because we did not want to stand idly by as America coarsens, its rhetoric debased by its highest representatives, its honor diminished by its preeminent officials, its moral standing degraded by its senior spokesman. We sought to cleanse ourselves, to wipe the moral stain that clings to us, to stand up and be counted, silence, is assent. Inaction is agreement. Idleness is support. It's hard for human beings to step into another's shoes, particularly with regard to immigrants, refugees, and strangers. Millions of people we do not know. We cannot even grasp the magnitude of millions. We are better able to relate to the suffering of one person. That is the reason I wanted to take you directly to the refugees themselves. To step into the shoes of the persecuted, the weak, and the dispossessed, and to step away from cynicism, sarcasm, and scorn. Look into the eyes of a young Syrian girl as we did. Hear the traumatized child, now laughing. The laughter of a child, the most pleasing sound in all existence. Does it affect you at all? Envision where she came from and what brought her to this shelter. It will be harder for you then to speak of her as a security risk, a threat to America policymakers may still decide not to take her in, and many thousands of those like her, perhaps for good reasons. There is a limit to what any one country can do, although our country could be doing a lot more. And it is true that there are some bad people riding the wave of immigration. But cease this callous cacophony of contempt. Its intention or effect to dehumanize her and desensitize us. Hear the cries of desperate children, the saddest sound in all existence. Does America first preempt our moral obligations? Does America first free us of the need to think of others? Does Total allegiance contradict our Jewish responsibilities? Do dreamers also have the right to dream the American dream? You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know the soul of a foreigner, for you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. To step into another's shoes is the beginning of morality and the first step of compassion. Step into the shoes of the dispossessed. Try to see not a Muslim, a Mexican, an African, an Afghani, an Iranian. Try to see a child of God and try to hear their cry. Try to imagine yourself on a tempest-tossed rickety boat. Fleeing Assads chemicals, Taliban atrocities, Boko Haram, savageries and ISIS brutalities. Try to feel the desperation. It should be familiar to you. Don't you remember? You don't have to go all the way back to Egypt. Just think back two or three or four generations. We Jews were on those boats. The wretched refuse that no one wanted. The world shut its doors to us too. Still living among us are survivors of the great inferno. Do not allow three generations since to dim your memory or dull your moral sensitivity. One remarkable Afghani refugee we met in Salonika reminded us that the only difference between us is that He was born in Afghanistan and we were not. Most of us live here because of a decision of an ancestor who, whether by foresight or fortune, decided to leave before the gates of hell bolted shut. Were it not for that decision, we would not have been alive. We would never have been born. Many of our ancestors who disembarked on Ellis Island could not speak English. Had that been a condition of immigration, we would not likely be Americans or even alive. The very arguments voiced against immigrants today were voiced against us yesterday. So what are we going to do? We will continue to work as hard as we can, we will keep on keeping on, we will continue to speak up and act up so that America lives up to the content of its creed. We've made a good start, but it's only a start. We have three task forces each with over a hundred participants who are pursuing social justice diligently, determinedly, and daily. I urge those of you who have not yet joined to reconsider. We will gladly accept any contribution of time, talent, or treasure. Our synagogue is not a political organization. You want to do politics, that's for other organizations. It's good to do that, but not here. We do not endorse parties or candidates. Our concern is the morality of policies. Our calling brings us into contact with the political world, but not as partisans. We are moral agents seeking the welfare of the community. Judaism is for freedom, the expansion of human liberties. We despise racism, misogyny, xenophobia, intolerance and hatred. We are for justice. And righteousness. We are for tolerance, acceptance and love. We are for mercy. The entire body of prophetic values may be reduced to the one insistence that the weak and the dispossessed be treated with respect and dignity. We are for racial justice. (laughs) Hello, chivnei chushim atem li said Amos. "Are you not as children of Ethiopians to me, O children of Israel?" Hello, hello, elachad <laughs> beraanu," said the prophet Malachi. "Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why then do we break faith one with the other?" Everything we receive from Jewish tradition pleads with us. Get more involved. Be more active. The sages teach that we are not obligated to complete the task, but neither are we free to desist. Trying is what Judaism expects. We know that the wolf will not lie down with the lamb today, nor will the leopard lie down with the kid tomorrow. But we also know... That human beings ought to be peaceful, that each of us ought to be able to lay under vine and fig tree unafraid. And we will keep trying to bring about that day handing the torch to our children when our energy is spent and our work is done as we receive the torch from our parents. Do not lose hope. Keep the faith. Our country is strong. With all its challenges and all its problems, this is still the most exceptional country on earth. Its best days are still ahead. Americans are generally good and decent. We are still the last best hope on earth. The American dream is alive. It is still alive. The sun shines on this country and dawn will come tomorrow as well. We are blessed to live in America. Our Jewish ancestors could not even dream of such a place. We are blessed to fight for principles and values. Gird your loins and fight. Protest, advocate, lobby, and defend with passion the ideals that define us. Do not lose faith in American democracy. The pendulum swings from victory to loss, to victory again. Social gains are rarely easy and never permanent. Progress like gay rights, minority rights, the right of women to make decisions for themselves on matters affecting their own bodies, these advances must be fought for indefinitely. There is no relaxing, only perpetual vigilance. It takes decades, often centuries, for bedrock principles to settle into the soil of the American landscape. There is nothing automatic about liberty, freedom, And constitutional protection. Martin Luther King reminded us that human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. Every step towards the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. It took a near century from the proclamation of emancipation to the Emancipation Proclamation. And it took another full century from the Emancipation Proclamation to the enshrinement of the Voting Rights Act drafted by Martin Luther King and his colleagues in my father's office at the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism in Washington, D.C. It's something that the reform movement can be very proud of. Voting rights are now under renewed threat. The struggle never ends. Political gains must be consolidated politically. Do not begrudge these years, they can make you better. Nothing inspires us more than the fight for principle. Moral sentiment and grim resolve lift the heart and feed the pure running waters of the wellsprings of life itself. These years may concentrate our minds and force us to think what we really believe. What are the bedrock principles that guide our action? These years may deepen our understanding never to take anything for granted. Everything can change in human affairs. We get better through struggle. We do not seek, nor do we expect, A challenge free world. We do not seek to empty challenge from our lives, but to challenge the emptiness of life. Not to escape struggle, but to struggle with escapism. We should want our fight to count, to mean something. Amidst the challenges of the years ahead, Lay opportunities for sacrifice and service and ennobling struggle. And through our struggle, we will remind our fellows and ourselves what constitutes winning. Winning is when justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Winning is when we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Winning is when we seek peace and pursue it. Winning is when we love our neighbor as ourselves. It is the preeminent command. I so want to win these things. I want to win, like never before, total allegiance to the best of America. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us pledge to make America first, first in kindness, first In generosity. First, in realizing the American dream, the dream of equality, of opportunity, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. First, in harnessing the immense natural and human gifts of this country, not for ourselves alone, but for all mankind. America first, to protect the dignity and worth of every human being. America first as a force for good. America first to pave the highways and clear the byways, holding back human progress. America first to bring light to the dark places of the earth. America first to raise every valley, to lower every hill, to level the rugged ground and to smooth the high ridges, preventing human happiness. And when we do these things, When we unlock the fetters of wickedness and untie the cords of bondage, when we let the oppressed go free, when we share our bread with the hungry and take the poor into our home, when we clothe the naked, when we banish the menacing hand and evil speech, when we do these things, when America is first in this way, we will have won the age-old struggle for meaning and overcome our darker selves, victory. And on that day, The storms will scatter, the skies will clear. Our light shall burst through like the dawn, shining in all the dark places of the earth. We shall be like a luscious garden whose springs never fail. We shall be called repairer of the breach, restorer of life. We shall be set astride the heights of the earth, the eyes of all people upon us, a city on a hill, forever and ever.